Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. First Peter chapter three is where we're well. We left off uh, finishing up second or First Peter chapter two, and in chapter two, uh, Peter writes about really what your and my purpose is in life, and uh, it's kind of summed up there in verse nine of chapter two. In First Peter it says, "But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people." that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our purpose in life is to proclaim God's praises and what he's done in our lives. And Peter also writes in second there in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you and I were to live our lives as pilgrims and sojourners, you know, just traveling through this life, not getting not getting too attached to this life. And, uh, you know, as we travel through as pilgrims and sojourners, it's we're to live our lives in a way that glorifies God by how we live our lives. And so in chapter two, he talks about being submitted to the government. And that's, that's maybe a hard thing for us today, but that's what we're called to do. You know, as we're reading that, and sometimes you might say, well, you know, I don't know if I really agree with what's going on in my government and all that stuff. Think about who this was written to. This was written to believers in first century in the Roman Empire, and they didn't have rights. They didn't have, you know, anything like we have. And they had a very, uh, very godless empire, very godless emperor, and yet they were called to submit to those authorities. And so how much more are we to submit to our government? And then he also talks about submission to masters. And, of course, that's something that's a little bit foreign to us, too. You know, we're not slaves. Uh, You might say, well, I'm a slave to my job. But, you know, again, putting it in perspective, it's nothing like what the first century Christians had to do. And so if you want to apply that whole passage to being submitted to masters to your own life, well, then how much more does it apply to you? as an employee who's getting paid by you, whoever your employer is. And so uh, really, you know, maybe the specifics change a little bit, but the application certainly applies to us and the, how much more in this day and age. And so now as you get into chapter 3 of 1 Peter, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter uh, now extends that application of how we're to live as pilgrims and sojourners to the family, and in particular to marriage. And so that's where we leave off there, or that's where we're picking it up, I should say. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now notice he's not saying be submissive to men in general, but within your own marriage. He continues that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste, and that could also mean pure or spotless, free from impurity, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, which is also reverence or respect. And you think about it, in that again, in that first century culture, 
many not only were slaves coming to Christ, but there were many people that were coming to Christ. Uh, you know, in you know they were both Gentiles and and you know husband and wife, and then one either the husband or the wife comes to faith, and so now there's this new phenomena that's occurring is 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 families where one person's a believer and one person's not a believer, and. Peter is writing to the wives that are in those situations. How do you how do you live your life in a situation like this? And he says that you uh, you know you live your lives in such a way that uh, even without a word you can win over your husbands to the love of Christ just by how you live your life. In verse three, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle uh, and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. What does it mean gentle? It means mild and meek and humble and quiet, you know, peaceable and tranquil. I like what F.B. Meyer says. He says, what, are, uh, what we are is more important than what we say. Our life is our best sermon. If we would expend as much care on the hidden man of the heart as many do on the outer, what lovely characters would result? You know, if we put that much focus that we put in into making ourselves look good on the outside and making sure, you know, we, 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 we smell nice and we look nice and we dress nice, if we would put as much effort into doing, and there's nothing wrong with that. He's not condemning it. But if we would put as much effort or more effort into, into the inner, how, how, how God sees us, uh, how much more important would that be and how much better would that be for us? Verse 5, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Now it's interesting to me that Peter goes back to the book of beginnings, right? The book of Genesis. And he gives his readers Sarah, Abraham's wife as an example of a godly and a submissive wife. Well, you have to, well, I ask myself, you probably do too. Well, in what way was Sarah uh, an example for, fi- for wives to follow? And you have to kind of look back into, uh, into Genesis, and you've got to read a little bit about Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 12, we know that God called Abram. His name was Abram before it was Abraham. Sarah's name was Sarai before it was Sarah. And God called Abram to leave his homeland of Ur and to go to a land that God would show him. And God says, you know, God promised to bless Abram and make a great nation from him there. The problem was Sarah was barren. So they didn't even have any children at the time. And God's saying, all right, pack up your belongings, go to a land, and I'm going to bless you there, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. And, and here, they didn't have any children. What did Sarah do? Sarah submitted to her husband's vision and accompanied him. She did. What, was it difficult for Sarah to submit to Abraham in this, uh, in this quest that they were doing? Think about what it would have been like for Sarah. First of all, she was leaving family behind. And those of you that are married, you know, your wives, typically, maybe not always, but typically your wives, there's an attachment to family. 
And so you're pulling, you're rooting up your wife, going to a land away from your family. So you're leaving the family. Not only that, she's leaving the stability and comfort of her own, of her own home, right? Not only that, but she's following her husband to a place, and he doesn't even know where he's going. <laughs> Can you imagine if, that, if your spouse did that today? Hey, honey, I, you know, I, I feel like the Lord's called me uh, to sell our house. And to move. And you're like, oh, oh that's, that's kind of a shock. Okay, where are we moving to? I don't know. God's going to show us. We're just going to pack up and head out. He'll, he'll show us where to go. How many of you wives would have a just like, oh, that's awesome, man. I'm glad you're hearing from the Lord. Let's go for it. That'd be a struggle, wouldn't it? Well, think about that. Sarah did that. And she followed him to fulfill a vision he received from the Lord. She didn't hear it from the Lord. He did. And it seemed like an impossibility at her age having a child, let alone becoming a great nation. But she submitted to him, and she followed. And eventually, you know the story, they make it to the land of of promise, the land of Canaan. And what occurs in Canaan? They're there, I don't know how long they're there, but they're there for a while, maybe a year or so, and a famine occurs. And God had said, hey, you go to this land. I'm going to show you this land. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation. And a famine occurs. And what does Abram do? Hey, it looks better over in Egypt. Let's go to Egypt. And so they head out. Rather than staying put and trusting God to fulfill his promise, Abram decides to go down to Egypt because apparently the famine either wasn't as bad there or hadn't hit there. And this time, Abram didn't say, hey, God told us, to go to Egypt. This time, uh, you know, Abram's not being led by the Lord. At least the Bible doesn't indicate that he's being led by the Lord. It seems like it's his own idea. And yet, Sarah still follows him and still submits to him and still accompanies him. And to make matters worse, upon their arrival, Abraham gets really worried. And, you know, Sarah is drop-dead gorgeous, believe it or not. She's just, she's just a great-looking lady, 75 years old, roughly, around this time, and yet she's a beautiful woman. And so Abram's worried about her, and he tells her, actually he's worried about himself, he tells her to pretend that she's his brother, so that Pharaoh, when Pharaoh sees her and sees how beautiful uh, she is, she won't, he won't kill her, or excuse me, kill uh, Abram, and uh, take Sarah to be in his harem, or to be to be his latest wife, his newest acquisition. Um, you know, if you think that I'm exaggerating that Sarah was drop dead gorgeous, sure enough, this is exactly his fears actually are fulfilled. Uh, Pharaoh sees her and wants her to be his wife, and you guys know the rest of the story. And if not, read uh, the book of Genesis. Um, Sarah even submitted to Abram in his scheme that he made there. Even in that scheme, the Lord wasn't directing Abram, and yet Sarah's like, okay, honey, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I'll do it. And she does it. Uh, now, Abraham was rebuked by Pharaoh as a result of that, and it'll happen again later on with Abimelech, uh, but it'll, Abram was rebuked by Pharaoh, and you know what? There were long-lasting consequences of Abram's decision to go down to Egypt that, believe it or not, they extend all the way down 6,000 roughly years ago to today in the Middle East as a result of that decision back then. 
And we could get into all the what you know the things that happened, but it has to do with Hagar, the Egyptian slave that Pharaoh gave Abram, and from there Ishmael was born. From there, the, the Arabian race was 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 you know created, and from there, and you guys know this, the you know the tension that exists now in the Middle East between uh, the children of Jacob and the children of Ishmael. Well, Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets forth Sarah as an example of godly submission to her own husband. And so Peter says there in verse 5, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. Adorned themselves with what? With meekness and a quiet, peaceable spirit. Being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good or not afraid with any terror. terror excuse me. Sarah had lots of of opportunities to freak out in fear, right? I mean, it's, it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> God spoke to you and said, pack up our belongings and move. And you don't even know where you're going. What do you mean uh, that, you know, you don't have a clue where God's leading you to? You know, do you realize that Sarah and Abraham traveled a lot? And this was not, I mean, they're not like just newlyweds. They've been married for many, many years. They're advanced in age. And they're packing up and they're moving. And so they're, they're traveling. They're not stable. And Sarah kept home or kept, you know, was a housekeeper in tents for years. How would you women like that? You know, just always like your, your camper trailer. You know, that's just, you can live in your camper trailer for years on end or in a tent or whatever. Or we'll go from motel to motel to motel. What a life would that be? What kind of a marriage would that be? Sarah endured that with her husband. She quietly trusted God to lead her husband, and she did not react in fear. Now, Peter gives the wives here, we've gone through what, about six verses of an elaborate instruction, and now he changes course and he speaks to the husbands and only gives them one verse. And you go, well, what's with that? How come he only has one verse? And Sarah's told all these six verses that she has to do. Well, think about it, and my wife could probably attest to this too. Guys don't do well if they have to follow more than one instruction, right? So you give them one instruction and let them you kind of chew on it and understand it and, and let it sink in, and then you can move on. Instead, if you give them six instructions, six things, they'll as you give them, you know, you give them the first thing, and then you're moving on to the next things for him to do or whatever. He's still thinking about that first thing. Hmm. Yeah, you know, and and contemplating it and stuff. It, it, that's maybe it's just me. That's my marriage. But you know, my wife, she, you know, she gives me a shopping list, and and uh, it almost invariably, I'll like fifth or sixth thing I'll forget. You know, it's like oh, I forgot about that because I wasn't paying attention. So anyway, so Peter, he probably understands this, and he gives husbands one verse to chew on, and yet in this one verse, there's really several applications that are built into it. So verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So the very first thing, if you were to tear this verse apart, the very first thing he tells husbands is dwell with them. In other words, be united in activity be united in purpose, be united in seeking the Lord. And the reason why I say that, I've seen troubled marriages. And too often in troubled marriages, husbands and wives, they live separate lives and yet they're under the same roof. 
Husband goes, does his thing. Wife does her thing. And they're not joined together. They're not dwelling together. They're, they're, they're like roommates, basically, in the same house. And they also have separate relationships with the Lord. Maybe one of them's growing in the Lord and one of them's not. And they're not together. And so he says, dwell with them. Be united with them. And it's, and I'm going to submit this, it's the husband's duty to bring that about. It's the husband's duty to bring about emotional, physical, and spiritual unity in the marriage. There's a lot, there's a lot of responsibility here. So what's the application? Guys, be actively engaged in your marriage. And so he says, dwell with them with understanding. Understand your wife, right? Communicate with your wife. Understand the nature of marriage, what it means to be married. What does it mean? You know, should I be home at night? Yeah, you should be home at night with your family. You know, you should be listening to your wife. You should be giving her that love and that security that she deserves and that she needs. And, and then you take that knowledge and you apply it in your marriage. Because there's a lot of guys that know these things, but they don't do it. And so Paul's, or excuse me, Peter, you know, he's stressing that. And then giving honor to the wife. And that means giving her the highest degree of esteem and valuing her. Man, honoring your wife. And, and believe me, I know guys that do not honor their wives, that do not value their wives. They kind of, they just take their wives for granted. I mean, you know, in my position, unfortunately, when people come to me to talk about their marriage, it's usually not, hey, our marriage is really going good. We'd like to talk with you about, you know, I just want to share how good our marriage is. That's not what happens. Usually I get a phone call, hey, you know, someone's crying on the other end of the line. Uh, you know, we're having a, a fight. Can you come over, you know? And, and, and I've had to, well, I don't, I try to not get in right in the middle of those things. But I had those phone calls. And they're not pleasant. Um, and usually there's these issues that are going on. The husband's not valuing the wife. They're living two separate lives. And then something happens and things explode. And so he says, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, what does he mean by the weaker vessel? Does he mean spiritually weaker? Absolutely not. Does he mean intellectually weaker? Definitely not. What does he mean? I think Peter is generally referring to physically weaker. And, and I think what he's trying to get across is that husbands need to understand the limitations of their wives and treat them accordingly. Um, not making unreasonable demands upon your wife, not dictating like a tri- uh, like a tyrant. And you know, uh, we've got camping dishes. Well, I don't know if we have them anymore, but we used to have Melmac. You know what Melmac is? I'm sure most of you know what Melmac. It's like plastic, right? We had plastic where camping. You know, kids give them the Melmac cl- glasses; they can drop them. You know, they're not going to break. They're they're great. Um, you treat Melmac pretty, you know, you don't care about it, right? If it, if it gets falls or drops off a table, big deal. You know, you pick it up and whatever. Now, if you had crystalware, well, you treat that a little bit differently, right? You, first of all, you're probably not going to take crystalware camping. You're not going to give it to your children. Here, have, your, have this crystalware goblet. You know, it's funny, though. I bring this up, but you know what my wife does, which I think is really cool? Sometimes when the grandkids are over, she'll set out a table a real nice table, and she'll put the finest china and the finest glassware and, have, and, and actually let the grandkids drink and eat off of the finest china that we've got. And it's, it's like a really special thing, and the kids love it, you know. But she has a thing of doing that. You should try that sometimes with your kids <laughs> if you don't care for your crystalware. 
I've never seen a sipper cup, though, that's crystal ware, but anyways. There's, maybe there's a market for that. Um, but you know, you treat fine crystal ware different than you treat Melmac, right? You do. Um, your wife is the weaker vessel. She's like crystal ware. And so you treat her differently than you treat Melmac. And that, that's basically what I'm trying to get across. Treat your wife as she deserves. She's the weaker vessel. She's more precious. She's more delicate. Treat her. And I'm, again, I'm generalizing, but I think that's the application here. And he says, as being heirs together of the grace of life. You know, Paul wrote that in Christ there's neither male nor female. We're one in Christ. And for us husbands, we need to understand that our wives have much to offer spiritually to the marriage. They're not just, you know, don't, yeah, I'm the spiritual guy, don't, you know, don't tell me. No, listen to your wives. God even told uh, Abram, hey, listen to Sarah. Acknowledge that they are, uh, you know, that they have things to offer. They're a joint heir with you. And acknowledge that and then grow together. And what does that mean? Being in the prayer together, spending time in the Word together, reading the Bible together. I would even say being in ministry together. That's a great thing to do. And he says that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, Peter is assuming that the husbands have a prayer life. And he's addressing the husbands here. And so basically he's telling the husbands, hey, if you're noticing that God's, you know, there's there's like you're not hearing answers to your prayer, your prayer life just seems kind of empty. It just, it just seems like you're praying and it's hitting the roof and bouncing back down at you. Check your marriage. Because if your marriage isn't good, your prayer life's not going to be good. And God's, you know, God's... Uh, Your prayer life with the Lord will be hindered if your marriage is not what it should be. And then in verse 8, he says, now he's kind of moving away from the marriage and to men and women in general. And of course, this would apply in a marriage as well. It's not just outside a marriage, but applies in all situations, in all relationships. Verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. When he says be of one mind, be like-minded, you know, it's obvious that we have a room, I don't know how many people are here this morning, but it's obvious that it is, you know, uh, we all have different ways of thinking. We all have different opinions about things. You know, if I was to say, take a poll of every, like, we're going to replace the carpet in this, in this sanctuary here, um, and, I, and I go around, what, what color carpet do you think we should change it? I would probably, if there was 50 people here, I'd probably get 51 opinions. I mean, you know, it'd be like, no, red, green, you know, beige. You want something neutral. You want something, you know, there'd be all these different opinions. Why? Because we're all different. We all have different, you know, thoughts. We all have different backgrounds. We process things differently. We're individuals. Um, So how can we who are individuals think the same and be like-minded? Why? How? (laughs) By having the mind of Christ. That's why. That's how. Having the mind of Christ. Thinking as Christ thinks. And then he says, having compassion for one another. And that word compassion is the Greek word sympathies. It's where we get the word sympathy. But in today's culture, what, what is a sympathy? You know, sympathy is like somebody passes away and you give them a sympathy card. And you, my condolences. You know, our sympathies are extended to you. In today's culture, sympathy means to share in someone's sorrows. But when Peter wrote this, sympathies meant not only sharing in each other's sorrows, but also sharing in each other's joys. 
Man, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's, that's how we're to be drawn together and be like-minded. He says, love as brothers, be tender-hearted. And that means to be, you know, have a soft touch towards each other, as opposed to being hard-hearted. Man, be soft. You know, be, be, just be willing to, to bend with people. Be, be compassionate towards people. And then be courteous. And, and that really means friendly and kind. I would even say polite. It's funny, um, when Teresa and I were first married, we, you know, we, uh, we got married in Minnesota, and then we moved. We're, I'm from California. We moved back to California. And we were looking for churches to settle down into, and we finally settled down into a Calvary Chapel. Um, but before that, there was this great big, huge church in San Jose. And I don't know how many of you ever heard of Phil Driscoll. He used to be with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, the rock band back in the 60s. And I, I, don't know, I don't know his testimony, but at some point he became a Christian. And anyways, trumpet player. Great. Loved listening to him. Anyways, he did this concert at this, like a mega church there in San Jose. And uh, we went to this concert, Teresa and I, and uh, it was awesome. And the people in there were just praising the Lord. And, you know, just it was just a very lively worship uh, time there, and it was like it was like man, this is real. This is like heaven, you know, sitting here uh, worshiping. When the concert was over, now this was like maybe like a four thousand member church. It was huge. When the concert was over, we got into our cars in the parking lot. We we're leaving, and it blew me away that these people who are waving, you know, praising the Lord and, and worshiping and everything. When we got out into the parking lot, they're not Minnesota nice out there. It's like every man for himself trying to get to the exit. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I thought you guys were Christians, you know, but everybody's cutting people off and not letting people in. I thought, well, that's really bizarre. But we're to be courteous towards one another. We're to be polite towards each, each other. You know, and, and I'll, be, I'll share this with you. Some, you know, like I said, this doesn't just extend outside of the marriage. I know we're done talking about marriage, but this applies in the marriage as well. I'll be honest with you. I'll be totally frank with you. I've had times where I've said stuff very shortly to my wife, where I've been really rude to her or something. And uh, with tears in her eyes, she'll say, how come you know, you treat me that way? Would you ever say that to anybody in the congregation? It's like, oof. Wow. It's, it's convicting. But that's what really we should do. It, it extends to the family. We're to be courteous to our spouses, courteous to our children, courteous to our parents. We're to treat them with respect and, and be tenderhearted towards each other. So, yeah, this extends, this applies outside of the marriage, but it, it applies inside the marriage as well. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Not returning evil for evil, but blessing for evil. That is the greatest challenge to love someone. It's easy to love someone when they're nice. It's easy to love them when they're when they're good to you, or you know, they're, or it's a neutral thing. But when you've been wronged by them, ah, it's a little bit tougher to love someone. And yet we're called to do that. He says, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I like what the New Living Translation says. I don't use that for my Bible study typically, but sometimes it kind of just sheds light on verses. It says here, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. I just like the way that, the way that flows. And now here, 
In verse 10, Peter quotes a few verses from Psalm 34. It says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. His refraining his tongue from evil, that means restraining or or stopping your tongue from speaking evil and, and deceitfully. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So, You want to love life and see good days? Here's the formula. Not only are we to restrain our mouths from speaking evil, but we're also to restrain our mouths from speaking deceitfully. How's that? That's, you know, telling half-truths. That's presenting ourselves in a better light than we are. That's manipulating with our words. Those are things that Christians do, actually, believe it or not. Uh, We're to restrain our lips from doing these things. And not only are we to turn away from evil, like he says, to shun evil. You know, these are all things to avoid. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But instead, do this. He says, but we are to do good, to seek peace, and to pursue it. Doing good, doing the right thing. And then seeking after, pursuing means to seek after eagerly, earnestly endeavoring to acquire peace in your relationships and in your circumstances. Pursuing peace, being the peacemaker, being the first one, being willing to say, hey, you know, hey, can we, can we just reconcile? It might even mean saying, you know what, I'm sorry. Maybe you're not the one that did the wrong, but just saying, you know what, would you forgive me? Can, can we have that rest, restoration, reconciliation, taking that step? That's, what, that's pursuing peace. That's what we're called to do. It's interesting because we all probably know people who are constantly in conflict with other people. You know, I can think of people that I've known in the past that, you know, none of you here, but I mean people that have been in conflict, they're constantly in conflict, uh, and they're believers, you know, and, and sometimes those people, they're miserable to be around. They're... If you talk to them, you know, how's things going? Well, you know, this person offended me. They did this. And and there's always a conflict in these people's lives. And after a while, you know, you start, as you get to know this person, you start realizing, you know, that it seems like there's always a conflict in your life. There's always somebody that you're in conflict with. I wonder what's in common with all these things. And it goes, well, it's you. (laughs) You know, it's the person. They're in conflicts with them. What a blessing to just be able to diffuse conflicts by quenching it with blessings instead of retaliation. What a blessing, just living peaceably with one another instead of always having conflicts. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And now Peter sort of switches gears here, and for the rest of this chapter, and actually into chapter 4, he's going to address the Christian and suffering. Because let's face it, There are times when it doesn't matter what you and I do, someone is either out to just hurt you because you're a Christian, or someone is one of those people who loves to live for conflict. And they're in conflict, and you're their target. You're the one that they want to have conflict with. We live in a fallen and a sinful world, and and the reality is you may pursue peace, but sometimes it eludes you because the other person, the other party, is unwilling to be at peace with you. What do you do? Well... Verse 13, he says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 
You know, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And then Peter writes in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Peter gives us a little bit of a clue here. In the midst of suffering unjustly for righteousness' sake, Paul tell, or excuse me, Peter tells us to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does he mean? That word sanctify means to acknowledge him, to venerate him, to hallow him. In other words, even if you should happen to suffer for righteousness' sake, set God apart in your heart. How do you do that? Well, Dwell on his goodness. You, somebody may be attacking you and doing things against you, but understand God is not visiting evil on you. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. Keep that in mind. Also dwell on his love. In the midst of whatever you're going through, whatever suffering you're enduring, remember God loves you. This I know because the Bible tells me so, right? Understand that He loves you. Dwell on His power. He is able to deliver you. Greater is He who is in the world, or greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Dwell on His power. And then finally, dwell on His, well, there's probably more attributes, but dwell on His justice. He will avenge the wrong done to you. Remember Jesus, or God said, uh, um, uh, not for us to seek vengeance. You know, he'll repay. We don't need to worry about it. Let God fight your battles for you, basically. And so, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then he says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And this is in the context of suffering. I sometimes take this verse and go, you know, we should always be prepared to share the gospel, which is true. But he's talking about in suffering. And so know the Word of God. And so what does that mean? Well, you have to be in the Word of God, right? You have to read the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Be in the Word of God. And let the Word of God be in you and dwell in you. Because during those times of persecution and those times when someone's out to get you, the Holy Spirit will use the Word to counter and to silence the false accusations of your accusers. And so have the Word of God in you. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Don't be a Christian who is persecuted because you're obnoxious, right? I mean, I've known people, I've worked with people who are like, the boss is out to get me, and you know, they're, they're an outspoken believer. Well, yeah, it's because you're a lousy worker. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're just not doing your job. Or you're obnoxious, or whatever. Or you're spending the company dime, you know, being a being a you know proselytizing people instead of doing your job. I've seen all that. You probably have seen all that too, in the workplace. So don't you're not persecuted if you're if you're weird, okay, uh, or you're offensive, or if you've done wrong. 
But Peter says, if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, man, you are blessed. And then jumping ahead, I'm just going to jump into chapter 4, verse 19, because it's kind of summing it up. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And, you know, I think that's kind of maybe just the application overall of this whole passage that we've looked at. You know, Sarah going through not understanding necessarily what Abram was doing, uh, certainly not having the word of the Lord to her. It was the word of the Lord to Abram to, to leave the land and, and go and do all that stuff. She trusted God in, in, in that situation. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage today. Maybe, maybe your husband is, or your wife's an unbeliever, or you, you know, and you're struggling through this. Trust God. Just trust God in that situation. Seek to be peaceable with, with your spouse. And uh, commit yourself to the Lord God because He's good and He's faithful. And so that's the application for marriages. And it's also the application for when we're suffering for righteousness' sake. Man, just trust the Lord. Let God fight your battles. Let Him protect you. You know, don't try to protect yourself. Just, just trust the Lord. And uh, you'll be blessed as a result of that. And uh, so we're going to uh, stop right there because the next chapter, the rest of this chapter in chapter 4 all deals with suffering. And I kind of want to put it into one, one, uh, one uh, message or one study. So we're going to stop right there. And uh, Luke, you want to, you're ready to come on up there?